today we are in part two of a two-part series, so this is the last day, of our sermon entitled Not In It to Win It, based on Pastor Andy Stanley's book of the same name. As we talked about last week, and if you missed last week's message, please go online, hammockstreetchurch.com, or go to our YouTube channel, and you can find it there. In recent years, we have seen the divisiveness in America skyrocket, and sadly, that divisiveness has kind of leached its way into the ecclesia, into the church of the people of Jesus. And in light of this, today I would like to gently remind everyone of what our calling as followers of Jesus Christ is. And I'd like to talk about the way that we are to live our lives in response. So I want to start off this morning by making sure that we are on the same page with each other and the same page with Jesus, more importantly, so that we can leverage the conflict in our society for the glory of God. Now before we dig in, I want to tell you that after speaking with people from Hammock Street, from all over the political spectrum, left, right, and center, I thought it important to point out something that might be helpful to everyone so that they can feel confident in their ability to make that transition from a nation-centered worldview or an American-centered worldview to a God-centered worldview. So why don't we pray, and then we can talk about it. Heavenly Father, thank you for this community, for this ecclesia, for this church. Thank you for the people that you've brought here. Thank you for each of their hearts and minds and passions and thoughts, as well as their, their fears, as well as their struggles. Because together, God, we are the body of Christ. We are your people. And we're here for each other, and we're here for those around us. So God, as we continue on this morning and we look at your word and understand how you would have us live this life, help us to be receptive to that message, because God, we want to serve you with all our hearts. We love you, in Jesus' name, amen. Now let me begin by setting your mind at ease. The way of Jesus, the way to which each believer of Jesus, each follower of Christ has been called, does not have to replace your political bent, okay? It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to replace your caring about the kitchen table issues in your life, all right? Those issues that everybody worries about every day. Your calling to Christ does not force you to replace any of that in your life. So if you follow Jesus, you can still pay attention to politics, okay? I absolutely pay attention to politics. I always have. I have a degree in political science. It's all I ever cared about, okay? So I'm there. And I also have my own pretty strong political leanings and opinions and beliefs. And, and I believe that I have arrived at them after very careful consideration and very thorough research of all of the positions on all sides of all the issues I have an opinion on. One of, the, one of the things that we trial lawyers are good at is research, because we have to convince people that our side is the right one, whichever side we happen to be taking. 
which as a lawyer is pretty much code for whichever side is paying me, that's my side, okay? But what I'm talking about is the mandate that a follower of Jesus must be able to disentangle our political leanings from the thing that is exponentially more vital to our lives. And it's also exponentially more vital to the health of our world. And that is our identity as the people of Jesus. So I like to think of it, our identity as the people of Jesus is way up here. And then your political identity or your cultural identity, whatever that is, is down here. It's, it's, it's lower than, okay? It's not on the same level. And no matter what our political leanings happen to be, we've all been mandated. It's mandatory. We've been mandated by Jesus that we, his people, act at all times like his people. And that we don't take our cues from our culture or our politicians or our celebrities or our professors or our teachers or even many times the various self-anointed religious leaders in our society. Just because someone goes out and says, I am a Christian religious leader, you don't have to believe them. There's no panel that appoints people as such. Jesus made it clear that even though we are in this world and we're all here in this world, we do not have to behave as if we are of this world in any way, ever, period. We don't have to behave that way. It's simply not negotiable. Now, the reason I wanted to spend a couple of weeks talking about this stuff is because the people of Hammock Street Church are uniquely placed in this Christian community here in Boca. Even though we're not a giant church, we are a very diverse church. Our community has people from all over the world, from North America, from Central and South America, from the Caribbean, from the United Kingdom, from the rest of Europe, from Asia. We're diverse, and we're not only ethnically diverse, we're actually politically diverse, which is something I'm, I'm quite proud of and proud in the good way. Because oftentimes Christian churches are not all that politically diverse, but we are very politically diverse. We have people from all over the political spectrum here with us, left, right, and in the messy middle. And to my knowledge, every single one of us is not just comfortable in this community, every single one of us, to one degree or another, loves this community. That's a good thing. Because if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's what you've been called to do, and that's who you've been called to be. As Jesus said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, I can't believe this has become an old guy thing to say. And, and I was talking about it just a minute ago with the younger folk back there in the sound booth. It seems like every day there's more new words and there's more differentiation between older people and younger people. Like I don't understand half the things I hear anymore, which is really freaking me out because I thought I'd be able to keep up, but I can't. But it's an old guy thing to say now that when we love somebody, we're much more able to work through any disagreements that might arise. That, that was never even an issue when I was growing up. People disagreed, but it didn't stop the way they loved each other. And that's important because in every human relationship, even the closest and strongest relationships, there are going to be disagreements. Did that shock anybody? That when there are human relationships, there are going to be disagreements? 
There are always going to be disagreements. We're all different. We're all individuals. But there doesn't have to be division. Disagreements arise as people interact, but division is a choice that we don't have to choose. We don't have to make it. And not only that, but a strong case can be made for healthy disagreements between people who love each other. When people who love each other are able to work through their disagreements, it brings them closer. All right, let me take a check. Have I said anything too objectionable yet? No? Okay, I'm going to keep going. I didn't think so. Now let me change that. And to soften the blow a little bit, maybe, I'm going to aim what I'm about to say at my father. Uh-oh, I know, you're getting nervous. My father's here. You can console him later. But what I want you to know is I cleared this with him first. I already told him what I'm going to say. Don't think I'm picking on him. Don't think I'm being disrespectful. We had this conversation. Now, I'm talking to my dad here, so if you'll give me a minute. But if it applies to you, if you find like what I'm saying to him applies to you, that's on you. And I'm talking to my dad, okay? As I told you, this goes for dad, right? Believe it or not, believe it or not, dad, Political disagreement is usually fueled by differing and varied life experiences and not by low IQ or bad intent. Okay, I'll say that again. Political disagreement is usually fueled by varied or different life experiences, not by low IQ or bad intent. Now I can hear my dad saying, no, it's because they're not very smart or it's because they're just not good people. And trust me when I tell you, I get that. I understand. It is just easier to blame somebody's differing political opinions on their low IQ or their apparent lack of values and morals or even their lack of common sense. You've heard the expression that common sense isn't common. Well, there you go. But listen up. When you do that, when you assume that somebody who differs from you is just dumb or evil, you know what you're doing? You're doing unto others what you do not want others to do unto you. Right? You're sizing them up, you're stereotyping them, and then you're writing them off. You don't want them doing that to you, do you? Oh, you're a Republican? Oh, I can't even talk to you. Oh, you're a Democrat? Yeah, not interested. It drives me nuts when people think they've got me figured out. I promise very few people have me figured out. My wife, maybe two or three other people, that's about it. Now, I was talking to my dad. I know you guys are not that way. You're thoughtful, mature people, right? Aren't you all? And thoughtful, mature people don't prejudge others. Thoughtful, mature people want to get to know others. Thoughtful and mature people want to completely and thoroughly understand others so that you can speak love and grace into their lives, right? Right? You want to be like Jesus. And Jesus didn't prejudge others, did he? Jesus didn't size us up and write us off, even though he certainly could have. And thank God he didn't. The fact that God, in His grace and in His mercy, loves us anyway and has called for us to do for others what He has done for us, 
That should make us thank him all day long. And, and this isn't just a nice idea. I want you to know that. This is something that Jesus didn't just suggest. He mandated it. He said, this is what you will do if you're one of my people. The word command, we get that from the word mandate, okay? A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. In other words, Jesus said, you're to love one another even if you disagree with one another, especially if you don't agree with one another. Remember what Jesus said? He said, love your enemies. That's the definition of somebody you don't agree with. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Our love needs to look like Jesus' love. Our love needs to be gracious and kind and patient and honest and direct and always compassionate because that's the way that Jesus showed his love for us. Let me put this back up here. We can do this. Do you think we can do this? Of course we can do this. We can disagree politically and yet love unconditionally, can't we? Because Jesus didn't give us the choice. If we're following Jesus, this is a core requirement. That's why Jesus modeled for us what one another loving looks like. Think about it. The guys in the room, when Jesus said all of this, the disciples, they had so many differences. They had so many different opinions, different lifestyles, different ways of doing things. And yet Jesus loved them all. He could have gone around the room and called each one of them out for all the reasons that they were unlovable. Matthew was a traitorous, dishonest tax collector. We know what Judas did. Simon was a violent zealot. Peter was a hothead. You get the picture. But Jesus didn't do that. Instead, he said, this is what I'm calling you to do. I want you to do for each other what I have done and what I'm about to do for you. God loved us in spite of the fact that we were, and we still are, wrong about a lot of things. God even loved you, and God even loved me when we were wrong about him. And he said, if I've done that for you, you can not just, can't you just do that for another person? Like, how hard is that? God loves you in spite of your misinformed, experience-based, ever-changing views. And if you think your views have never changed, I invite you to try to think back to when you were 15 and think of the things you thought then, and then tell me if they're different today. I'm going to guess, at least from there, they are. And you might have changed your views over things even throughout your life as you went on from 15. And God commands us to do the same thing. God says, I want you to love each other in spite of your misinformed. And we go, whoa, 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 but, but God, she's just wrong. And God says, okay, she's wrong. Love her anyway. And, and we go, but God, she's wrong. And God says, interesting that. Is being right the litmus test of whom I love? And then we go, I guess not. And Jesus says, okay, then just love her or just love him. And we go, but God, their whole worldview is ridiculous. It's just based on feelings and personal experience. And God says, I hate to tell you this, but so is yours. And we go, yeah, but I'm different. 
And Jesus says, yeah, really? I want you to do for others what I have done for you. But not, pay attention, but not because it's the nice thing to do. I'm not telling you to do for others as I have done for you because it'll make you nice or because it's the nice thing to do. It is so much bigger than that. It is way bigger than that. God says, I want you to do for others what I have done for you because this is the number one mission of the body of Christ, the number one mission of the church. There is virtually nothing more important than this. How can we know? Because at the end of Jesus' ministry, before he was arrested, before he was crucified, Jesus said, I've called you to love one another as I have loved you. Guys, this is a command. This is not a suggestion. And this unique, counterintuitive, countercultural, illogical, reckless way to love brings people together who are nothing like each other and who don't even normally like each other. And it's the only thing that will identify you to everyone as one of Jesus' followers. It's not just a, hey, give this a shot, see if it works for you, or, or give it a try, what, what do you have to lose? This is the thing for the followers of Jesus. In fact, the more we disagree politically and the more diverse we are politically, while still continuing to love one another, the more noticeable, noteworthy, and notable our church becomes. The people in our church become. Our lives become. The more we're able to do that, the more people will notice. For that reason, the fact that we don't all agree politically is actually an advantage. It means we have a unique opportunity, especially in our area. I always tell people one of the great things about Boca is here being kind is countercultural. You want to stand out in Boca? Be kind. Give it a shot. Seriously. People will notice. People will smile when you walk in the door at the doctor's office or Publix or the dry cleaner, wherever it is you're going, your, your office at work. Being kind is countercultural. We have a unique opportunity in our area to shine our bright light for Jesus and serve as an example to everybody around us. And this might be something you already know but you might not know that you know it, getting along with people who are just like you is nothing to brag about. Getting along with people who are just like you is expected, isn't it? That makes sense, right? But loving and serving with and worshiping with and being in a small group with people who aren't like you and people who don't share your worldview or nowadays your political views, that causes other people to notice. How, how can you hang around with those people? Remember what they said to Jesus when he was having dinner at Matthew's house and the Pharisees said, oh, your, your master eats with ugh, those people. Yeah, those people. We're those people. That's what helped change the world. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it, talking to the church in Galatia. He said, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And we go, all right, Paul, well, what are you talking about? Here's what he's talking about. Do you realize what doing that will require of you? It will require you to move in the other person's direction. And it will require them to move in your direction. And when we do that, when we move in another person's direction and they move in our direction, we'll discover that our differences become much easier to understand. 
We'll at least be able to see the thought process, the life experiences that led that other person to arrive at those different beliefs. And when we do that, many times we'll go, oh, we'll have that ah moment, which brings us to an inflection point, which brings us to another moment, and we're going to have to make a decision at that moment. Are we willing to trust that Jesus is right and obey him, even when we can't see it, even when we might disagree, or are we just going to refuse to follow Jesus so we can remain focused on our politics over our faith? I assure you, focusing on politics over faith is always a mistake. It's when we carry each other's burdens that we fulfill the law of Christ. Regardless of how different we are, we'll be able to break through the current narrative of division and distrust and truly learn to love each other once we learn to carry each other's burdens. It's very hard to dislike somebody after you've been praying for them for a while. It's really tough. If you wake up in the morning and you're praying for somebody, it's really hard to do that and then hate them a minute later. So for those of you who are stuck on the concept of they, those people, which is basically everyone who thinks differently than you, if you're stuck on the concept of they are they're just completely wrong and they're completely horrible, if you're a follower of Jesus, I have some news for you. You've got some work to do. If you're a follower of Jesus, you don't have the luxury of thinking like that anymore. And I know that there are people listening to me that don't believe what I'm saying. That's okay. In fact, that's good. Good on you. I do not speak from Sinai. This is not the Lord proclaiming. No, I'm not doing that. I don't merit blind obedience ever. When you hear me say something, check it out. Check it out for yourself. Do your research. Read the Bible. Read the Bible commentaries. Read the Bible commentaries on every side of the issue. Don't just read your side. Read all the sides. You need to know what the arguments are. Read all the sides. And then, when you see that I faithfully communicated God's command, if that's the case, if I have, then get to work figuring out how to love other people and carry their burdens. And know that when you do that, it will change you in the best of ways. You will fear less, you will understand more, and you might even change. Not parties, although that could happen, but perhaps the way you see the world and the way that you view people around you. And you may see things differently than you ever have. Maybe you'll understand people that you've never understood before. Maybe then you'll be able to move on from that common sticking point of meeting someone whose opinion differs from yours and immediately defaulting to your thinking, ugh, how does anyone do that? Or why would anyone do that? Or how could anyone vote that way? Or how could anyone think that way or believe that way? Give me a break. See, when you learn to carry somebody else's burdens, then the moment you hear yourself thinking stuff like that, you'll be equipped to remember I wonder why. There must be something about them that I don't know. There must be something about them that I need to discover. You know the expression, hurt people hurt people? If someone's hurting you, you need to ask yourself the question, why? What's going on in their life that they needed to hurt me? And while it's counterintuitive and unnatural and inconvenient, it will make you better. And it will make the world better, and it will make the church, the body of Christ, stronger. Because that's precisely how the church began. And that's precisely how the church changed the world. Now we're going to take a look at a passage that illustrates this point. But first I want to set the stage. 
it is really, this is a, a tough thing for us to do, and we all know this, and we, we try our best to, to get over it, but it's tough for us here in 2023 America to understand how divided the different groups in the ancient world were. I mean, it was a really divided world. We're going to talk about that in a second. But if they were able to set aside their differences and launch churches, if they were able to find common ground and serve together and love and forgive each other, if they could do it, we have absolutely no excuse for ourselves. See, while our culture is certainly divided over politics, the divisions in their culture ran much, much deeper. Their culture was divided by class and by family and by citizenship. In their culture, people actually had to buy their way up the economic ladder. And they were at risk at all times of losing their freedom and falling into slavery. People often had to sell themselves into slavery in order to rescue their children from slavery. And vice versa, a lot of people sold their children into slavery to rescue the family from slavery. People also had to sell themselves into slavery if they couldn't afford to support their lives anymore. Like if their crops had failed or their, or their, their trade had dried up. This is a situation we can't even fathom let alone understand. But, but it was in this culture that the church of Jesus, the ecclesia of Jesus, was birthed. And when looking at this situation, you need to understand just how impossible it would have seemed to the people living in that time. Jesus' followers were advocating for people who would never, ever mix with anyone from a different class or from a different ethnic background to voluntarily gather to worship together the resurrected Savior. See, in that culture, such an idea wasn't only unique, it was revolutionary. It was absolutely unprecedented. And it wasn't like they were gathering together in a large room like this one. They were gathering in small houses. It's hard to ignore somebody when they're in your living room in your kitchen. Lots and lots of small houses. And they were preaching the message of Jesus, and they said everyone was welcome. Now, even if what I just told you doesn't, it, what I just told you doesn't even come close to describing just how disturbing and how countercultural the following words from the Apostle Paul were, especially to the Roman and Gentile Christians. So here's what he said to change the world. And as we read it, know this. This is the very same thing, the very same movement that I've been invited into and that you've been invited into. It is truly the only way, this is it, it's the only way that will make our nation and our entire world a better place. This is it. This is the only solution we have. Don't believe anybody else. We're never going to have a human utopia. It's not going to happen. This is the solution. Here we go. Paul said there is neither Jew nor Gentile in Christ Jesus. This notion alone was absurd to them. In the first century, the gap between Jew and Gentile was so wide that it on its own almost destroyed the church from the very start. That's what the Jerusalem Council in Acts was about. Jews and Gentiles were miles apart culturally and morally. They were radically different in the way that they lived, in the way that they ate food, in the way that they married, in the way that they courted, and in the way that they behaved. Their differences were significant, and their differences were monumental. For them to ever come together in the same community 
would require extraordinary patience, an extraordinary level of compromise, a level of patient and comp patience and compromise that nobody at the time thought possible. No way. Indeed, 20 years after the resurrection, they were still fighting about it. They were still trying to work it out, but they didn't give up. And the reason they didn't give up is because they understood that God had done something new in the world and for the world, and that the ecclesia, the body of Christ, was to be the message bearer. The ecclesia was given the responsibility of getting this message out to the whole world, and they could not allow their differences to get in the way. Keep going. Paul said this too. There is neither slave nor free in Christ Jesus. I want to talk for a minute about this statement. You have to put yourself in their shoes and think, how did this sound to them? In that world, slavery was foundational. It was a foundational part of their society. And when Paul suggested that this new movement, when he suggested that inside of this new, new movement, free people and slaves were equal, people must have pushed back and said, hang on, Paul, uh-uh. Everybody knows. Everyone is seen. It's self-evident to everybody. It's not up for debate. It's not up for discussion. It's very clear. Some people were born to be ruled over, and some people were born to rule. Paul, you know this. There's a huge difference between owners and the people who are owned. Paul, our entire world, our entire economy is built upon this indisputable fact. Every single pagan religion, every single pagan god that they ever worshipped, from the Greek gods to the Roman gods, every single god had taught them this fact. So they said to Paul, what do you mean there's no slaver free? Are you saying that, that God values the owner as much as God values the owned? Are you saying that your God gives the same amount of dignity to those who are owned as to those who owned? Are you really saying that there's no difference? That your God doesn't play favorites? Paul, do you realize that if this ever catches on, that's the end of slavery? To which Paul would respond, yeah, precisely. And those seeds did after way too long, but those seeds did take root and eventually bear the fruit that undermined the slave trade wherever Christians thrived. And this is something you need to remember. Don't let anyone tell you differently. In the parts of the world where Christianity is either illegal or hidden, the slave trade continues today, to this day. The African continent, in the Middle East, in Asia... The slave trade continues unabated. This is neither a coincidence nor an accident. The liberating gospel of Jesus has had huge cultural implications that were all ushered in by the people who were following Jesus. Go back and read the, abolition, read the stories of the abolition movement. It was all driven by the followers of Jesus. Truly following Jesus makes you better at life and makes life better and makes the world a better place. But Paul was not done. He said, nor is there male and female in Christ Jesus. Prior to this, women's didn't have free, women didn't have women's. Women didn't have the freedom to live their lives or even a possibility of receiving equal treatment or an equal education or equal opportunities. I have to imagine that anyone hearing Paul's words was losing their mind by this point. They've got to be going, whoa, 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 wait one minute, Paul. Are you saying that men aren't superior to women? To which Paul, I'm sure Paul would have replied, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. 
This is a message of dignity in a time when women had previously experienced very little dignity. And as a result, women flocked to this Jesus movement. Now, Paul didn't make this up. He didn't make this stuff stuff up out of whole cloth. The seeds were sown by Jesus. And to us, today, it's self-evident. Of course, there's no difference in value between men and women. When Paul wrote these words, it was not in any way self-evident. Indeed, to the people then, it was the opposite of self-evident. And Paul kept going. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So here's the whole verse. There was neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In the kingdom of God, there is no distinction. There is equal dignity, equal worth, equal value, and complete unity in Christ Jesus. This was ridiculously disruptive. If this caught on, the fabric of the entire empire would unravel and That's exactly what happened. It did, just as Jesus predicted. And it wasn't simply because a bunch of people just believed something. The Roman Empire, the most powerful, far-reaching empire the world had ever seen, totally unraveled because a whole bunch of people lived out the teachings of Jesus. Their unity disrupted and eventually obliterated an entire empire. The followers of Jesus refused to allow their built-in differences to divide them, and the unity of the first century church shocked the world. And before too long, their message, through their unity, changed the world. And as for us, because the church as a whole is so large and so diverse, we're at risk of being divided over similarly of a similarly wide range of issues. But here's the thing. Though you may not understand now why or how another Christian could possibly be for something that you are against, or how another Christian could could be against something that you're for, and though you may never, ever, ever understand it, and they may never, ever, ever get to the place where they can fully understand what you believe, what you believe in politically, what you believe in socially, what you believe in economically. They can't understand why you're against what you're against and for what you're for. We cannot afford to let that divide the body of Christ. Listen, they may never change their views, and you probably won't change your views either. And I know that makes things messy and difficult, but but hear me. That's what makes our being unified, noticeable, and noteworthy. That's exactly what allows our light to shine in the darkness. So let's not make the mistake of distancing ourselves from believers we disagree with. And again, don't listen to me. Don't listen to what I have to say on the subject. Let's listen to our Lord. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? It's no big deal to love the people you love. That's natural. It's common. It's a very big deal to love the people you'd rather not. Jesus was clear. If you're one of his followers, it's not sufficient. It's not even significant to love the people who love you back. It's not important or impressive if you only show love to your people. That makes sense, doesn't it? Right? It's really easy to be okay with people who are your people. It requires no effort. It's comfortable. It's not stressful. It's not confrontational. It doesn't make your blood boil. It doesn't make you scream at the computer. 
That's how the lost people in the world who don't know Jesus already live their lives. Jesus said, don't even the pagans do that? But what if that's the way we did things? If Jesus decided to only be with his people, he would never have stepped foot on our filthy, broken, messed up planet, and we would be doomed for eternity. But Jesus made it clear. He wants us to be different. He wants us to be a different kind of people. He wants us to be with our people and with the people who aren't our people. With the goal that someday they too can become our people. Our nation is so divided because everybody ran to the extremes and vacated that messy middle. People weren't interested in learning about other people because it was much easier to hang a nasty label on them and think of them as evil. And, by the way, it was much more profitable as well. It's tough to raise money in the middle. And it's tough to attract a bunch of followers to the middle. And it's tough to make yourself famous in the middle. People get a lot of attention at the extremes. But we can't allow ourselves as followers of Jesus to do that. No one on the extremes has ever changed the world. Hear what I said. A lot of extremists out there, but no one has ever changed the world. They've only divided the world. And they continue to divide the world. They come and go, they come and go, they come and go. But Jesus has invited us to do something different. Jesus has invited us to do something extraordinary. Jesus has invited us to be something else, to be something amazing. So let's just do what the early church did because it worked and they changed the world. Let's just be Christian. Let's be above everything else. Being a Christian is job one. Let's be above being Republicans or Democrats or any other party you belong to and let's all be partisans together of a king, of a king who established an upside-down kingdom, an others-first kingdom, a go-to-the-back-of-the-line kingdom, a do-for-others-what-they-can't-do-for-themselves kingdom, a kingdom where marriages are a submission competition. Oh, yeah, you did the dishes, I did the laundry. You, oh, you vacuumed, I cleaned the windows. Listen, we got to compete with each other to submit to each other in marriage where everybody is for everybody else. Because it's not about me in that kingdom. It's about what we can do together. And what we can do together for our area and for our culture and for our world. It's a kingdom that, in all things, adheres to a forever relevant command. God wants you, always, in every situation, to do what love requires of you. Whenever you're wondering what to do, ask yourself, what does love require of you. It's a kingdom that might make us scream, that is so weak. That is so passive. But it's a kingdom about which Jesus would say, weak? Passive? I was brutalized for that kingdom. I was nailed to a cross for that kingdom because that's what love required of me. And he's told us, and I want you to put other people first and to bear their burdens because that's what love requires of you. It's really quite simple. Jesus has commanded us to love them as he loved us. This new command serves as a bridge between our differences.
and between our dissimilar backgrounds and between our dissimilar life experiences. It serves as a bridge between the differences in how we were raised and by whom we were raised and what we were raised around and what we were exposed to and why we think certain things are right and why we think certain things are wrong. Jesus' command is the bridge between our disagreement over solutions. Because here's what we have in common. We all think that what is best for people is what is best. Don't we all? No matter what you think, what you think whatever's best for people is what is best. We just disagree on what's best for people. God so loved the world, all the people, that he gave what was most valuable to him. And he's invited, he's invited all of us, all of his people, to give him our all and to be his hands and feet in this world. And we can't do that if we're devoting all of our energies to our favorite party or to our pet positions or to our favorite politicians because they've fired us up or because they've manipulated us into fearing for each other instead of loving each other. See, they keep on telling us, those people, those other people, they're coming to get us. Be afraid. Those other people, they're winning. We're losing. We can't afford to lose. But if you just send me $20 every month. That's how the game is played. Both sides are always trying to convince their teams that they're losing. That's the game of politics. In the game of politics, you always have to be losing. But then they'll say, but if you'll join us, oh, if you'll do our bidding, we just might win. We might save the nation. But what would happen if the followers of Jesus decided, we're just going to follow Jesus? We're just going to adopt the posture. We're just going to adopt the mindset and the attitude and the approach of our Savior and our King. You don't have to be afraid of the other party. And you don't have to be afraid that they're coming to get you because God came into the world to get you already. God sent his son for you and you can be forgiven of your sin and you can love people who are hard to love because you are hard to love and God loved you anyway. See, we have an unprecedented opportunity here and I don't want us to miss it. I want to get this right so that when you find somebody in our community or you find another Jesus follower whom you know who is different from you, who believes differently than you, who sees the world differently than you, what if instead of getting all amped up, you smile and you go, man, I love my church. I love my community. I love our Christian community. I love how we're all part of the family of God. We might be miles away politically, miles apart politically, or miles apart in terms of life experience, or in terms of how we see the world. But isn't it awesome that we can still love each other? Let's listen to James, Jesus' little brother. Let's be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Let's not keep our distance. Let's be kind. And then let's be willing to call out unkindness when it comes from our party of choice. Let's be honest with each other. Let's be willing to call out dishonesty even when it comes from our side, especially when it harms someone else. Let's live and let's love and let's lead in such a way that the ecclesia of Jesus regains the moral high ground and is once again positioned to be the conscience of our nation. Let's be Jesus followers. Let's do everything without grumbling or arguing so we can become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in this warped and crooked generation. And then, because we're so different, yet we're so unified, we will shine among those people like stars in the sky. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who set the joy before him, who suffered the cross, who gave his life, the one who did not 
come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life for the, as a ransom for many. Jesus, the most powerful person in the world, never leveraged his power for his own benefit. He leveraged his power for my benefit and for your benefit, and he's asked us to follow him. Jesus, who invited us, and this is so un-American, but this is so life-changing. Jesus, who invited us to abandon our independence and take up a cross and follow him. That's how we win. That's the win. That's the win for our church, and that's the win for our nation. And that's going to be the thing that is celebrated in the end. So what do you say? We can do this. So let's do it. Let's be amazing. Let's be the ecclesia. Let's be the body of Jesus. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I know we can do this. You called us to do this. And you wouldn't have asked us to do it if we couldn't. Father, it can be so emotional for us. We can get so worked up. But I pray that you would open our eyes to our own sin and to our own need of grace and mercy. And that by your Spirit, we would find it in others to extend that same, find in ourselves to extend that same grace and same mercy to others, especially those with whom we don't see eye to eye. So give us, Father, the wisdom to know what to do and the courage to do it. And I pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.